Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, one Simus, who became my son whilst I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a great room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's interesting that you join us in a series looking at the church. So the last two weeks, Mike has been preaching on Ephesians 4, looking at what it means to be the body of Christ, the people that Christ is calling to himself and making a family for eternity, and what it means to grow in maturity. Um, and when Mike asked me to preach, he knew he'd be away, and this was a few months ago. So I was praying, Lord, what, he's given me a free card. What, what should I be preaching on? I felt very strongly that we should look at reconciliation. Um, and a month ago, Mike texted me to say, Pete, we're doing this series on the church, and rather than give you a free card, I think you need to preach on Matthew 18, which is about forgiveness and reconciliation. I said, funny you should say that. I've been praying that we should look at it, but I want to do it in Philemon. <laughs> so we, we met halfway. I just pray for us as we start, as we look at God's word. Father, thank you um, for the freedom to gather together and to really dig into what you have to say to us, to your church. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each one of us, including myself, because we come with lived experience, we come with hurt, we come with relational brokenness, 
We come with things we want to see transformed and hurts healed and people united. Uh, but we live in the gap with the brokenness. And I pray your Holy Spirit would encourage us, would help us fix our eyes on Christ. And in some small way, whether it's a small step that we take differently this week because of what we've read in this letter, that, Father, you would give us the strength to do that for your glory. Amen. Well, are you ready for conflict? You see, God's church is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a gift to the world in need of salvation and peace. I mean, with all the news headlines that have been flying around and various things uh, that we've been listening to and advice and, and rightly so having to digest a lot with regards to health concerns, I'm so thankful for the prayer diaries I receive in the post, particularly Tear Funds, which is a, a relief agency working across the world. Just over the last few weeks, we've been praying for different local gospel partnerships. Um, in Syria, in Lebanon, sorry, the church partnerships there are serving over one and a half million Syrians who have fled into their country. There's one project called Play for Peace, and it brings Lebanese and Syrian men together to play football with the simple but profound aim of bringing social cohesion, helping people with their difficult personal issues where they've been affected by the conflict, people who have lost livelihoods, homes, families, um, they've lost loved ones, and the journey to love and peace is not easy. Reconciliation isn't easy in that context, is it? Anger and hurt fester, and yet there's God's church on the ground giving good news and help to people to experience his healing power. Isn't that wonderful? We need to keep our, our eyes and hearts open, don't we, with all the headlines flying around. Keep looking at what's going on around the world on the ground. And yet, if there's one thing that does regularly make the news, and you've probably seen a lot of it over the last 12 months, particularly aimed at the church, is conflict. The papers love to report that. It gets on the internet and Twitter and everything like that as fast as anything. Conflict in the church. People who would say they're not Christians, who aren't part of a local church, that's one thing they kind of hear about and know about, is the divisions. And we are good at arguing, aren't we, over anything. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone or the Father and the Son? That one split the Eastern and Western church in 1054. Um, what role do our works have in salvation? How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Do we have priests, bishops, and deacons, or elders and deacons? Should we have women preachers or not? What mission should we support? Should gay marriage be celebrated in the church? Which churches can we work with? Who's sound and why? Um, what can we wear on a Sunday? What songs can we sing? How long should we sing? Do we raise our hands when we sing? Who decides what we should post on social media? What goes on, what goes off? How long should a sermon be? Answers on the postcard. Um, conflict is a reality, isn't it? Disagreements, arguments. When the US bank robber Babyface Nelson was asked why he robbed banks, he replied, because that's where the money is. <laughs> We could apply as logic to the question, why is there conflict in the church? Because that's where people are. The fact that conflict is a reality in church didn't take God by surprise. There's the main thing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus faces opposition. He prepares his disciples for opposition and conflict from people outside the church as well as people within it. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Paul's letters, especially when you read the letter to the Corinthians, is one dealing with the disastrous effect of division and conflict in the local church. So surely one mark of a healthy, maturing church is not being conflict-free. That would be a church of one. And even on a good day, I have arguments with myself. But the, the sign of a healthy church is going to be how we live with conflict. Are we matured by it? Do we rely on Jesus' love and grace in the midst of conflict? So are you ready for it? As I was running yesterday, halfway through the run, I felt this annoying niggle in my trainer. There was a stone there, and it was painful, especially when it got under my heel. But as I was running, and it sort of started to move around, I could just about put up with it when it was around the arch, and then by the toes, that was fine. Stay there, you little blighter, you know? And eventually, when I got home and took the shoe off, gee, I thought it was like this boulder that had sort of ensconced itself in my trainer. But no, it's less than half a centimeter, this little fragment causing so much annoyance. And I thought, thank you, Lord, for that sermon illustration, because it, it is a parable of unsolved conflict and, and disagreement, isn't it? It's a niggle. And we can't avoid it or bury it. If we do, it will fester. It will be painful. And ultimately, it will leave relational brokenness. It'll be a mess. And within that, I appreciate, and I will state this clearly, conflict and reconciliation can take many, many decades, even a lifetime, and they still might not be fully healed. I live with that in my extended family. And I remember a, uh, a friend uh, counseling me and saying, Pete, what would this look like in 10 years' time? And that was back in 2002. <laughs> and we're still progressing prayerfully, both with those who share my faith and those who don't. Sometimes it can be resolved within a matter of a day or two. I had an email from a friend uh, two weeks ago. I'd upset her. She boldly sent the email. We spoke on the phone. We spoke face to face. It was done within 24 hours, and everything was sorted. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for her confidence to come and tell me I'd hurt her. Sometimes, though, we cannot expect a quick fix. It's just not something that's going to be mended quickly. We've got individual characters, people's individual agendas, spiritual and emotional health. They're all varying factors when we come to resolve conflict and be reconciled. But I hope this morning that from God's word, with that introduction, we can actually see some foundations for building gospel reconciliation. Re reconciliation. Here we have precious treasure in this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon to the church that was based in his home in Colossae, what we know as Turkey. So first point that we're going to look at as we look at this letter is that any reconciliation starts with love and prayer. It starts with love and prayer, and I hope you saw that clearly from the letter. If you've got your Bibles open, just have a look at that. This letter that Paul has written to Philemon is very practical. It's gospel-soaked. It's about forgiveness, reconciliation. It's about a new relationship, bringing brothers in Christ together. Now, 
Interestingly, in the context, there hasn't been a massive fallout. There doesn't seem to have been some scandalous affair or immorality like in Corinth. And there doesn't actually seem to be a doctrinal heresy that's taken root. It's a broken relationship which, if ignored, could damage not only an individual but a whole church. And this letter to Philemon, along with the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Laodiceans, which we don't have preserved in Scripture, they're all connected both geographically, they're all in the same area, there's the same church, and we're told in Colossians 4, chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, they were actually hand-delivered by the same people. So if you want to just turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4, it might be helpful to keep a finger in Colossians, because we're going to flick there and back. It's on page 1184 um, of the Blue Bibles, 1184 and 1185. It's just a few pages back. And you can see there in verse 7, Paul writes in his final greetings, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. And then if you just look a little bit further on at verse 10, you'll see the same friends listed sending their greetings who are listed in Philemon. So you can see already how relational this is and how that letter to the Colossian church went hand in hand with Philemon. And this letter addressed to Philemon, so back in Philemon, you can see there in verses 1 and 2, obviously it's written to Philemon, who was probably the church leader, probably the pastor who hosted the church in his house, a gospel patron, maybe quite wealthy, um, and someone who looked after the Christians. Uh, We know that it isn't just to him, it wasn't stamped private and confidential for your eyes only. No, this was for the whole church family. Uh, We see in verse 2 that um, Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, probably his son, are listed in in the greetings. But also, in verse 3, we lose this. You might see it in the footnote in our English. Verse 3 and verse 25. The you there and the you're there in verse 25 are plural. It's to everyone the church would be listening to this letter read out. It affected everyone there. It it was a matter that needed their fellowship and their prayers and their support. And whilst the details about what's actually happened between Philemon and Onesimus are hard to piece together, um, Bible scholars have, and there seems to be consensus that um, Paul pastorally, doesn't spell out all the gory detail, he's not a tabloid journalist, but it seems clear enough that Onesimus was a slave who worked for Philemon, we get that in verse 16. He clearly left Philemon on bad terms, look at verse 11, how Paul plays on Onesimus' name, which means he was useful, and Paul states formally, Onesimus was useless, not useful. Ha, ha, ha. I wonder how that made him felt as he had that read out, but there we go. Um, He wasn't a great worker. Perhaps he was lazy, dishonest, disrespectful, who knows? It's interesting as well what the names of Philemon's brothers or uh, other household slaves would have been, wouldn't it? Brother Handy and Sister Multitasker and Onesimus the Useful. But Paul doesn't make excuses here, or he doesn't give a justification for Onesimus' behavior. 
Notice that. They've faced up to the facts and taken responsibility, and surely that is a key part, isn't it, of resolving any conflict? A decision to look at the facts, to take responsibility, and not blame shift. He's a runaway household slave. He's probably a thief stealing money from Philemon. Verses 18 and 19 speak of Paul being aware there's a debt and being prepared to pay for that. We'll look at that a little bit later. And now this runaway ends up in Paul's company, probably in Rome, the capital where he can be lost, not bump into anyone. Maybe he's heard about Paul and maybe he's thinking, I do need to go and get myself sorted and see this guy because he's heard about him through Philemon. But whatever happens, he's in Paul's care, who, and that's where Paul's under house arrest. He's got a limited amount of freedom, but under Paul's ministry, Onesimus is saved, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Paul calls him now a dear brother. A dear brother. And is very useful to Paul. He's helping Paul's work in Rome. So Paul's task is to broker a peace deal. The situation can't be ignored. It can't be brushed under the carpet. Is that sort of, does that make sense? Can you see how that holds together in the context of the letter? So Onesimus is being sent with Tychicus back to his master to reconcile two people, a newbie Christian and one dear, loyal, generous gospel co-worker. These are real people with real issues in need of grace and forgiveness. And did you hear the tone of the letter as Jess read it out? Can you see how genuine reconciliation grows out of the soil of love and prayer? Look at verses 4 to 7. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Can you hear the tone? The gratitude. Paul celebrates the encouragement that he's received, verse 7, from Philemon. He's refreshed. His heart is refreshed by Philemon. That's, that's not just a spiritual thing, like sending someone a nice, I don't know, Bible app uh, picture thingy with a verse on it. That's great. And that's good. Please do that. I'm not knocking that. But it, it, it is deeper, practical, financial, caring, rolling up the sleeves and helping people. And notice, Paul doesn't order or boss Philemon around like an army general barking orders. He persuades. He appeals to Philemon. He describes himself as a prisoner in verse 9 and verse 1, as an old man. Interestingly, in Colossians, he calls himself apostle. But here, to Philemon, I'm an old guy. I'm a prisoner. It's real life. This is a letter from an older dear friend to a younger dear friend. And Paul doesn't want to do anything without Philemon's consent in verse 14. Get the heart attitude. Let that soak in. Think about the conflicts you faced and how easy it is just to shelve that. Boom, I'm not having any of that attitude, you know. Got to get it. Get the fight face on. Isn't it easy to be defensive and cranky, offhand and blunt with people? 
Remember, our tone of voice can communicate so much about what we feel about the person. Just last night, as I was editing this talk, Em said to me, Pete, do you want me to read your sermon? I went, no, it's not ready. Sort of Gollum-esque. What's that about? Just barked at her. Gosh, what a fool. As this letter was being read out, with Onesimus and Philemon in the same room. Just imagine how uncomfortable that would be. (laughs) The tone and language of Paul's letter builds forgiveness, doesn't it? It takes the sting out. It puts people on the same level. We're brothers in Christ. We have common ground. We love each other. We're thankful for one another. And you see there straight away, there's a work that we've got to do on our hearts. It starts with us first, in prayer, for the person we have a problem with. Praying for a person who has hurt us is definitely the first and most crucial step in bringing a situation to God and not burying it. We need to bring our feelings, our words, our actions to the Lord, to our loving Father. Verbalize it. It's interesting, when you go through the Psalms, David was not afraid to recount and actually tell God what his enemies have said. (laughs) Yeah? So, in Psalm 12 and Psalm 22, he he verbalizes their insults. Lord, this is what they've said. Because he takes it to, in doing that, there's a processing, there's a handing over, there's a saying, this is what's going on, and I want to react the right way. The next part is cultivating gratitude for that person. That is tough, isn't it, if we're honest? Actually, deliberately thinking, how am I thankful for that person? What have they done in my life? And there are things they have done. Ways that they serve. Ways that they've uh, encouraged others. And in a church context, ways in which we've worked alongside each other. If that feels too much or not possible for you, I'm not trying to put an ungodly burden on you. If that feels too much, why not just start by saying, Lord Jesus, would you work on them? Amen. Could it be that you could just even discipline yourself to say, Lord Jesus, there's so many things I want to see happen to them, but I'm praying you will bless them. Amen. (laughs) Could you see? There were about 10 people that came to mind then. (laughs) Perhaps it's this. It's asking a trusted friend if they'll stand with you and pray for them. What's Paul doing? He's mediating. He doesn't feel the sting in the same way as Philemon, but he knows it cannot be ignored. Perhaps asking a trusted friend to be praying about that family situation or that situation at work and just saying, this person needs prayer. They need Jesus. They need his love. It gets stuck about here when I start praying it for them. Will you do it? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a really godly, wise thing to do. I love how honest the counselor and pastor Paul Tripp is. He writes this comment in his book on being an instrument in God's hands to help others. He says, I am capable of being angry, proud, self-righteous, argumentative, harsh, impatient, and unforgiving. When I do, I get in the way of what God is doing. I need the very Christ I am holding out to the other person. The comforting reality is he is working on us both. 
Christ will supply all we need when we need it. Amen, amen. Isn't that great to hear? Isn't that great to hear from a guy writing a book who has a a global ministry, who's helping broken people and just goes, I am in need of the same help. That's part of how reconciliation starts. So let's move on and look at what it means to count the cost of reconciliation. We're more used, I think, to counting the cost of separation rather than unification, aren't we? Um, Think about last July, um, it hit the headlines because the world's biggest divorce settlement was brokered between Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Bezos. Um, Jeff Bezos, the guy who owns Amazon, um, his wife, who they've divorced, and and reasonably amicably from the stuff that's out there publicly, but she received an Amazon voucher, sorry, Amazon shares. (laughs) She received Amazon shares worth $38 billion. Um, That's 29 billion sterling, um, making her the fourth richest woman in the world. How many prime deliveries is that a day? I don't know, but... um, And thankfully, this is really awesome too, she's signed a pledge to give away at least 50% of her wealth. So she's going to be, she's already supporting stuff and going to be giving loads and loads and loads away, which I hope will be a blessing to many. So whether it's couples separating, whether it's spouses divorcing, businesses going bust, bands splitting up, churches leaving denominations, countries leaving trade unions, we know breaking up is costly. And yet, Gospel reconciliation is costly too. Look at the cost for the main characters in this letter, for an Onesimus. Just imagine the weight on his shoulders. Put yourself in his shoes or sandals. He is a slave in the Roman Empire. Now, there's a whole other sermon to do at some point on slavery, and I would just put a footnote in to say, if you want to hear another great sermon, a fantastic sermon, preached at Grace, go to the sermon archive, and John Hindley, who used to be one of the pastors here, preached on this letter in 2007. It's brilliant. He spends a bit more time looking at the issue of slavery. I'm deliberately not, but please do go and listen to that sermon if you want to get a bit of a a context and intro on that. But essentially, in the Roman Empire, about a third of people were bonded servants. That is, they were domestic helps to household managers, to lawyers, to doctors. And slaves were people who had essentially signed up, given away their life to someone, to a master, to be in their care and keeping and employment for a lifetime or for a certain period of time. And in return, they would have a place to live, they'd have food, they'd have a relatively uh, level of, of security. And many slaves obviously did have hard lives and are in dire conditions. Now, a runaway slave could be killed for their disobedience. At the very least, they would have been branded a fugitive and punished. Now, here's Onesimus, the only slave to do a runner and return. What is going on? He's prepared to face the music. He has this letter from Paul. He has Tychicus as company as well, but there's no free pass. You see, Onesimus had come to saving faith. He knew the life-changing reality of what Paul writes in his other letter, Colossians. If you want to turn to it, Colossians 2.13. I'll read it out here. It's on page 1183. Paul writes in Colossians 2, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all for our sins. 
Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Wow! What a powerful truth that transformed this slave's life. His debts, his condemnation on Jesus, nailed to the cross. Gone. Free. Wow. The same for you and me. Wow. That's real freedom, isn't it? And here's the discipleship challenge. Do you carry on running or use your freedom to serve? Do you carry on running or use your freedom to serve? You see, Onesimus returned to Philemon, securing his identity in Christ. He was now working for the Lord. Paul also said that in Colossians 3, not for human masters. His inheritance is now with the Lord. It doesn't matter what's going on in the earthly sense in one sense, because your home is now in the kingdom of God. And Onesimus wasn't playing games, trying to shift blame, trying to say, well, you did this, you did that, the empire, me, me, me. He's just going. And he's, he's not pointing the finger at other people. So returning to Philemon's show, he actually entrusted his life to the Lord. You see, reconciliation and forgiveness does not turn a blind eye to justice. There are consequences to sinful actions. We have to live with the mess that we created. We can be forgiven for it. And we have power to change it. But we live with the consequences. He has a duty, and he faces that duty. And he faces an uh, uh, uncertain prospect. Will he be welcomed, or will he be punished? He's going to face the music, and he's got Jesus at his side. There's a cost for Paul, isn't there? Verse 12, what does he say? I'm sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart. Can you hear how relational that is again? Back to you. This is emotionally painful for Paul. His spiritual son, the lad he's seen come to faith and begun discipling and begun to see Bloom, who is a useful companion and a gospel helper, has now, we've got to go. I can't hold on to him. Perhaps Timothy and Paul have been cracking up an idea to let's get him as a ministry trainee. You know, he could then go off and do some church planting with, Paul, uh, with Timothy in Ephesus maybe. But Paul is willing to let him go. He could justify that loads of different ways, couldn't he? Keep him here. No, he's got to go. We cannot hide this. He's got to go back. He could have played the apostle card. It would have been an even shorter letter, wouldn't it? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and your father in the faith, whom you, Philemon, owe your life to. Let's not waste any more parchment or ink. The lad stays with me. Oh, and by the way, get the guest room ready. Love and grace. Done. None of that. None of that. No heavy shepherding from Paul. He wants Philemon to make that voluntary, unforced decision, verse 14. And there's also a financial cost. Paul is prepared to not only pay back what might have been taken, but also any losses for not having Onesimus there. He will pay for it. And interestingly, you can cut verses 18 and 19 out of the letter. You could delete it, and the letter would still float. It would still make sense. It doesn't have to be there. And yet, because of the gospel, it must be there. Because justice is not ignored. The gospel forgives, and it gives us the power to face the consequences. There is a debt owed. There is a cost to pay. 
And I wonder, I'm just speculating here, but I wonder whether Paul is speaking from lived experience here. When you flick over to Colossians and you see it here in Philemon, there's a name mentioned. There's a guy called Mark who's part of the team. Now, earlier, several, uh, about 10, 15 years earlier, Barnabas fell out with Paul about a guy called Mark, his cousin, whom he wanted to take on their second mission journey after they got back from Jerusalem. And Paul's having none of it for some reason, um, that he feels they've been let down by Mark. Anyway, look where we are. 10, 11 years later, AD 60, 61, as Paul's writing this, Mark's part of the team. I just speculate, I wonder, it's one of those things we'll find out when we go to glory, that is Paul learning from maybe what Barnabas did in reconciling him and Mark and that lived experience, perhaps, passing it on. These relationships can be brought back together. The gospel optimist in me likes to think that's what's happened, but it's only speculation. But Paul knows as well it's costly for Philemon. What's the cost of Philemon? Think about him turning up at church in his house, and there's this guy returned. All the family are there. All the, fr- all the Christians who are in the, the house group, in the household church, are there. And then he's got his neighbors. Think of the social pressure there. Get, everyone's going to think he's weak and a pushover, isn't he? Think of the other um, men who own slaves and have household staff. What are they going to say to Philemon? Come on, you've, you've got legal rights. You've got to at least punish him. You've got to at least give him a thorough beating if you're not going to kill him. Because if we let this one get away with it, what are the others going to think? We're going to have a revolt on our hands. Can you see that Paul is actually not saying that slavery's wrong and bad and stuff like this, but he's planting the seeds in a partial way that will change the empire, that throw people back to the gospel reality that we are created in God's image and we are free people in his family, free to serve. But for Philemon, this key appeal, look at verse 17. It is breathtaking, isn't it? So if you consider me a partner in fellowship, welcome him as you would welcome me. That is a request that turns the world's thinking upside down. He's asking this dear brother in Christ not to make a decision based on his legal rights, not to make a decision on his financial costs, not to make a decision on his reputation, not to make a decision on the relational dynamics within the household church, but on the gospel. It's nothing short of miraculous. Go back to verse 19 with me. Have a look at that where Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to, mention that if you owe, not to mention that you owe me your very self. And I appreciate, as I read that at first glance, and John makes this point in his talk from 2007, and I'm glad he did. As I read that, I thought, mm, Paul, that sounds a little bit manipulative, doesn't it? You know, what's going on there? If, not to mention you owe me your very self. Is that sort of like you're saying, oh, go on, I will pay if you really need me to, but by the way, if it wasn't for me, you'd be on the highway to hell. You know, what? come on. Well, no, that's not the case. Paul is presenting Philemon with an immense gospel opportunity. He's putting it as clearly as possible without forcing him. 
Listen to how Paul describes Jesus' saving work in Colossians 1. This is from verse 13. For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, freedom, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Can you see the substitution that's gone on? Can you see the reconciliation that has happened because of Jesus dying on a cross? You see, this reality that Jesus will bring all things together under his loving rule, that is where history is heading. We're no longer enemies, but children in his kingdom. And from that comes a new status to live responsibly, to live differently. As Colossians 3 says, bear with one another, forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Can you see? Christ did this for you, therefore go and live it out. This is your status, live out of it. This is your identity and gift, apply it. Be gracious, be generous, be forgiving. Nail stuff to the cross because it's been nailed for you. The principle is clear, isn't it? We bear with each other because the Lord Jesus bears with us, literally bearing our sin on the cross. It is a response to his grace. And the issue here is that either Paul or Philemon need to pay the debt. And Paul is giving Philemon the opportunity to follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's a discipleship moment. Do you want to go deeper in your love for Jesus? This is what it looks like. Take his debt. Do more. I'm confident you'll not only clear the debt, but you will embrace him as a brother, that you might even release him and give him his freedom. You might even send him back to me, which you know I want. Because of grace, not because I say so. That is powerful, isn't it? I don't know of any other power that is so out of my breath, so beyond me, yet changes and breaks me and says, I want to do that, but I can't. I need you. It's sheer grace. And this is the final, this is where we're going to land. Because as we read this, I hope you're feeling, yeah, this sounds good, but oh my life, how do we do this? You can't. You can't. You have to trust the reconciler to transform you. You see, gratitude to God is the motivation. We do this because Jesus paid our eternal debt, our sin on himself, taking hell on the cross, because Jesus not only forgives us, but gives us a new life, because we now have an inheritance in his kingdom as his brothers and sisters. That's secure, because God, who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then how can we hold back on generosity to others? If your bank account gave you multi-millions when you got home and you noticed a hundred quid had come out and you didn't know where that had come out from but you still got a hundred million in your account, you wouldn't feel the sting in the same way, would you? It's not going to hurt. And Paul says, Jesus was rich, yet became poor for our sakes, so that we might know his riches. 
reconciliation is costly for us. It starts with small steps, but it comes from the same grace and mercy that God has poured out on you. I wonder what those small steps will look like. Perhaps it's picking up the phone to make first contact. Perhaps it's actually asking someone for forgiveness. Perhaps it's asking someone to help you mediate in a relationship. Perhaps it means being teachable, being willing to listen, to take correction, to seek change. It definitely means not mounting a smear campaign, whether that's on social media or Facebook, whatever you use to let your, your rants go off and feel better, or rallying more supporters to your cause. Perhaps our small steps to reconciliation are like the widow's offering in the temple in Luke 21, where only Jesus sees it. It looks so small and so weak in, comp in com contrast to the wealth given by others. And yet God sees it, and it's a precious treasure. And in his hands, it's life-changing. Would Philemon's extraordinary generosity reach the new depths of love? Would he refresh Paul's heart? by giving the gift of fellowship and forgiveness to a person who could not earn it and does not deserve it. Paul is confident, verse 21, he will. On one level, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? We're not told. And yet, perhaps, on balance, the fact that the letter is here, preserved in Scripture, shows us they were reconciled. That it being here is a testament to a new family being built. Interestingly, in church history, there was a bishop called Onesimus, Bishop of Ephesus, lived and worked around 95 AD to 115 AD or something. Interestingly, it's another cliffhanger. Is it the same guy? It would be lovely if it was. From slave to brother to a overseer. What are you going to do today? What steps to reconciliation are you going to make to show that this gospel, this cross, this resurrection of Jesus counts. It changes everything. Perhaps you're here not reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled. Tomorrow night at Christianity Explored, the session that I'm leading with Rupert and Emily, we're looking at the cross. If you can make it, come along. Chat to me. Come and have a, a look at what Jesus has done on the cross. If you're here as a Christian hurting and in need of reconciliation, don't do it on your own. Come and pray with someone. There's Jess, there's myself. We can start that process today, this morning. You know what? Our confidence rests where Paul's confidence rests, where he closes that letter. Look at those words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is enough. Amen.